Know.com. Clarity about reality. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has preserved us until today for another week for this Jumu'ah. And we praise Allah for his favors and his bounty. I would also like to remind that for those that are in the know, we are in the last week of Rabi'ul Akhir. This means that soon we will be looking for the moon for Jumad al-Ula. If the moon is sighted, this will mean that Rabi'ul Akhir was 29 days and Ramadan is five months away. <coughs> if, excuse me, four months. If in the event that we don't, that is 30 days and it's four months away. So the time is coming and we have to start to get prepared because before you know it, we'll be looking for the moon of Ramadan and you'll be caught unaware. Use your time wisely and prepare. Prepare for this fast with the fasting of Nabila Dawood alayhi salam, one fast on, one off if you can. Prepare for this fasting if you can every week, Mondays and Thursdays if you can. Prepare for this fasting three days out of every calendar month if you can. Prepare because the month of Ramadan is coming. Now, so far in what we've covered in the khutbahs, I promised five khutbahs to discuss Muslim governance. And we've gotten to four of them, and now we are on number five, if memory serves me correct. I will quickly recap the phases of Muslim governance. The first governance, the Muslim governance, was a governance where we were ruled by prophets concurrently. Then came the era of the prophet kings, prophet kings that ruled over the Muslims. Then came the battles between fleshly, carnal, earthly kings and the prophets who had the divine right to rule in both spiritual and temporal affairs. The last period that we entered into of the prophets was the prophethood of the Prophet Muhammad وسلم, in which he is described as Nabiyun Abid. Now he was asked by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to make the choice that he could be a prophet king, Nabiyun Malik, could be a prophet king. Or he could be a Nabiyun Abid, a worshipful prophet. And Nabiyun Muhammad chose and said, I will be a worshipful prophet. So he was not a king among his people like some prophets have been Nabiyuna Dawood Nabiyuna Suleiman But on the 12th of Rabi' al-Awwal, the Prophet Muhammad he died. And after three days, he was laid to rest. I want to mention something very significant and important before I move to the next point. Why was he left in state for three days? Because the companions intentionally left him for three days. If you have seen the Jamaat Khana of the Ismailis, if you have seen the Jafari Center not far from here, if you have been to 
the Al-Khohi Foundation in London, Shia colleagues will come to you and say, why did you leave him in state for three days? This is the clear evidence that Abu Bakr and Omar and Uthman, they are murtads, they are apostates because they disrespected the Prophet by leaving him for three days. Answer to the question is this one. The Prophet Muhammad وسلم, he said as some of his last parting advice in the hadith of Sahih al-Jami'ah, when I die, do not come to pray on me immediately, for the angels shall minister over me for three days. Do not come on into me during that time. Aisha Siddiqui forgot about those instructions and at one point walked through because her room was right next to it, opened the door and she said, the door only opened a hand span and I could see in the door men wearing white standing over him. So this is why he was left for three days because the angels had to give their salutations and blessings. His janazah was different to the janazah of everyone else in the ummah. Normally you have an imam. Who, subhanAllah, is going to be the imam of the janazah of the Rasul So what happened? The men came in in turns and gave their salam to the Rasul then they left. Then came the women, then came the children, and that was the end. And on the third day, on a Wednesday, they dug up the floorboarding in, his, in, in the room where he was in, <coughs> buried there as per the instructions in a hadith that every prophet is buried where he dies. Every prophet is buried where he dies. So, you're saying Nabiuna Yahya was beheaded and he's buried? Yes. Go to the Umuwi Masjid. His head and his body are in that masjid. That's why that masjid was built around where he was because it was an old monastery. But when they became Muslim, they built the Umuwi Masjid around that whole area. So when you go there, the, the household of the Prophet وسلم, more than 20 of them are buried there. The head and body of Nabi Yahya is buried there because the Prophet is always buried where he dies. Now, on the back of that, Prophethood came to an end. Surah Ahzab, the 33rd Surah, Ayah 40. Muhammad's not the father of any of your men, but he's the messenger of Allah and the seal of the prophets, and Allah is mighty and wise. Yet, the Prophet Muhammad وسلم, he said in the hadith that is in the Sahih of Bukhari, the affair of this ummah will always be straight until the end of time. He said in another hadith, <coughs> That the Khilafah is in the Quraysh. And even if there should be two people left on earth, and the Khilafah is chosen, it goes to that from the Quraysh. So that hadith that's in the Sahih Imam Bukhari and the other which is in Sahih al-Jami'ah, those ahadith establish for us that something's coming after his time. Something's coming. So what happened? Well, we have to talk about this. <coughs> When the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu died, the affair of the Ummah passed to who? The inheritors. Because prophets, like everyone that dies, has inheritors. If I die, then this young, ill, indigent creature that you see next to me along with three others will be my inheritors. They are my inheritors. You see other people, they are inheritors where their, their mother will inherit, their father will inherit, their grandparents will inherit. Everyone has inheritors in that sense. But who are the inheritors of the Prophet Muhammad 
Here's who the inheritors are. He said, The scholars are the inheritors of the prophets. But the prophets leave behind no gold, silver, or coinage. But it is the knowledge that they leave behind. And they have inherited that. And whoever takes a hold of that has taken hold of much good indeed. This hadith in the Muslim Imam Ahmed and established from three different other channels shows the scholars are in charge of the affairs of the ummah, spiritual and temporal. There are four ahadith, there are four ayat in the Quran where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, Ya ayyuhalladina amanu, you who believe, Allah, obey Allah, wa Rasul and obey the Messenger, wa amri minkum, and those in authority from you. All the scholars from the first three generations of Muslims, those in authority, they say, wal fuqaha, ulama, fuqaha, the scholars. Fuqaha and the scholars. And so from that time, it was the scholars that put the Fatha and Kesra and Dhamma in the Quran so that non-Arabs could read it and put the consonantal markings. It was the scholars who wrote down the Hadith. It was the scholars who wrote down the Quran in a big thick script. It was the scholars who sent the missionaries. It was the scholars who sent the people out to different locations. If you look at who the Prophet chose when he sent people to different nations, they were all what? They were all the ulama. Mu'adh ibn Jabal was one of the ulama. Jafar ibn Abi Talib was one of the ulama. All of the people that were entrusted with crucial actions were scholars. Abu Bakr al-Siddiq was the most knowledgeable of all the companions, an alim from among them. And every Khalifa was in charge of that office. Now, a period came where the first layman to rule the Muslim Ummah came in. He was Yazid ibn Muawiyah or Yazid al-Awwal, and he was the first layman to rule the Ummah's affairs. And for the two years that he ruled, the tribulations were cataclysmic. Since that time, it's been this off and on battle between the scholars who are the inheritors of the prophets. And I mean, what I mean by scholars, I don't mean your local imam or the, they're worth, they're nothing in terms of comparison between them and the scholars. I'm talking about the mujtahids, the ulama, the ulul amr, these people who they have, these people who they give fatwa and their fatwas are global. Most scholars cannot give global fatwa. You have different levels of scholars. The scholars that I am talking about are the scholars who have spiritual, spiritual and temporal authority and that their fatawa are binding and they are global. There are 40 of them in every single age. These are the people that I'm talking about. They're in charge of the affairs. And that process of the battle between earthly, fleshly rulers, the same battle that the prophets had to encounter is the same battle that their inheritors must encounter. And this has been the struggle. But it's not over. This ummah has always been ruled by prophets or their representatives. And it's not over. The end result comes when this ummah returns back to being ruled by prophets at the end of time.
الحمد لله الحمد لله وكفى والصلاة والسلام على من لا نبي بعده وبعد It may be of some use for you if you memorize one hadith in spite of all the confusion that you may see around you. كيف يومهذ إذا نزل فيكم عيسى بن مريم وإمامكم منكم How shall you be on that day when Isa ibn Maryam descends among you and your Imam is from you? Imams Ibn al-Jawzi and others say that this is clear evidence of the coming of Nabiul Isa salam and Al-Imam al-Mahdi. Some have denied the coming of Imam al-Mahdi which is unfortunate because the book was compiled by Imam Mar'i ibn Yusuf al-Karmi who died 1033 Hijri who said that there are 500 narrations that cover his coming. However, the coming of Imam al-Mahdi when he comes and the oath of allegiance is given who will be the people who give him the oath of allegiance? The Hadith and Tabarani and other collections are clear. Those that come to give him the oath of allegiance shall be the highest ranking scholars of Iraq and Sham. They're the only ones that know all of the proofs and the evidences where they could recognize him to know that he was the Mahdi to give him the oath of allegiance. When he first appears, you and I won't recognize him. We won't know. We won't know who he is when, we, when he first appears because we don't know all the proofs. If some of you have seen all the 500 proofs, then alhamdulillah, Allah has blessed you. But most of us won't recognize. Just like now, there's people that don't recognize aspects of Islam and they make fun of things. And they think that things, oh, they make fun of things, they say, oh, that's not Islam. And they don't recognize, and actually they're going against the religion, and Allah's cursing them when they're saying that, because they're going against this deen. So, if that's the case with things like the niqab and the beard or any type of peach fuzz on your face, if that's the case with those things, <coughs> imagine something greater than that. Something greater than that. Now, the end result of everything is the Ummah returns back to being ruled by a prophet. This prophet namely being the Prophet Isa alayhi salam. The ayah that I quoted in the beginning, Surah Al-Zukhruf, the 43rd Surah 61. إِنَّهُ لَعِلْمُ لَسَاعَةً He is a sign of the hour. His coming is one of those signs. It's part of the creed of Muslim orthodoxy, the mutawatir creed of Muslim orthodoxy. So serious that if someone denies that, if they deny the verses in the ahadith, that's kufr. But if they reinterpreted them or said, well, I accept them, but I don't think it means this, that's bid'ah. Those individuals would not be from Muslim orthodoxy. They'd be people of innovation. That's how serious of a part of theology this is. This isn't like whether you, whether you think that the Orioles are better than the, uh, uh, the Oakland A's. It's something serious. It's not like the difference between the Philadelphia Eagles and the New York Giants. This is greater than that. It's huge. You need to believe this. His coming in which he rules 
with the Sharia of the Prophet Muhammad but with one caveat, which is in the Sahih from a Muslim, that when he comes, he lifts the jizya, and there shall be no faith accepted other than Islam. There shall be no faith accepted other than Islam. So the jizya that you're seeing right now, this is a temporary period. It's a hangover period. Just like, for example, if some of you are on long-haul flights and you have a hangover stopped. I've had hangover stops. You're waiting in the airport, looking around, and eventually that flight comes. So the Jews and Christians, some of them, they complain. We had to pay jizya before. We had these other problems. My response is this. Don't worry. Soon you won't have to. Soon you won't have to ever again. Just as the people that complain about the judgment of the fire. You, how can you believe in a merciful God who has the fire? Don't worry. All this time you've been laying out in, this, in the sun trying to get a tan. On that day, you will have a permanent tan. Don't worry, it's coming. Similarly, we give the same advice. Nabiuna Isa is coming brings everything back around full circle in which this is an ummah that is ruled by prophets or their representatives. Al-Imam al-Mahdi is a representative. Nabiuna Isa is the prophet. That's how it's always been and that's how it remains until the end of time. Now, what does that mean for us here now? Well, to put it as frankly as possible, I don't know if that's possible given the way that I spoke the last couple of weeks, but putting things as simply as possible, every single group that has risen up, that has said, we are going to restore the ummah to its past greatness. Every single group that's risen up that has claimed to do that has failed miserably. And the evidence for that can be established how? Have they established universal zakah? Have they established the governance of the revealed law throughout whatever land that they say they, no, no they haven't, they can't. Well then what's the principle then? Well they failed miserably because they're not using the original sources that happened with the Muslim governance of before. What am I saying? What I'm saying is all of the modern movements, all the modern methodologies, all the fancy, slick, technocratic moves that people have tried to use to sort of bring Islam back as if it's been gone. They failed miserably. Whether it's Jamaat Islami or Ikhwan al-Muslimin, I'm not afraid to name them because we know who they are. They failed miserably. Those that we like and those who we don't like, they failed miserably and they are headed towards another failure. Because any time, any time, you use a system or methodology outside of the methodology that's been given to us before, it will fail. You don't make, a, you don't make cakes using dynamite. You don't try to rule with the revealed law with other than its sources. It's a simple principle. So in this day and time where we're filled with upheavals, Syria's on fire, Egypt's on fire, Tunis is on fire, Libya's on fire, all these other places are on fire. The response is, so then Brother Abu Jafar, are you advocating that we just remain idle and do nothing? No, I'm not saying that. 
What I'm saying is this. I'm saying three things in closing. Number one is the revealed law can and will be implemented whether it's partial or full up until the end of time. But if you use methods other than what have been prescribed, you will fail miserably and you will be defeated. Number two, all of the groups that have come about that have said that they're bringing the revealed law have failed. We know that in the past, the methodology of bringing about Khilafah was through three sources, through either an existing Khalifa, Ijma being made on his coming, number two, a living Khalifa appointing one, or number three, that one seizes power with dominance and force in the land and the people give consensus on that Khalifa. In the absence of Khilafah, Sharia is implemented and still can be implemented because you can have Sharia without Khilafah but not the other way around. Because Muawiyah was the emir over his area, yet he wasn't the Khalifa. So you can have Sharia without Khilafah, not the other way around. So the number three, then, the methodology to implement revealed law must be correct. And I'll say something, and some may be offended, and I've thought about it for a few moments, and it doesn't matter to me, I don't care. But here's what I will say. In 1995, it was shown in Afghanistan that the revealed law could be ruled by irrespective of whatever we might think of Taliban social policies or what have you. I knew many brothers that were there as humanitarian aid workers and everything else. That when they took over in 1995 and swept across 90% of the country, they were successful. Between the Prophet Wasallam's death and the Khilafah was three days. And that was how it was. When the Khilafah was destroyed by the Mongols, it was brought back. That was four years. So the maximum we can see, we can judge any group by is between three days and four years. If they have not achieved the objective of bringing the revealed law, we're not talking about Khilafah, just ruling by the revealed law, if they have failed to bring that within that period, they lie. The law is not with them and they stand judged. Because anyone bringing the true revealed law has that success rate. That's the longest rate we've ever seen where we've been without revealed law like that. And every group for the past 85 years has failed, except one. The Taliban were successful because they brought the revealed law as it was meant to be brought. However, they had one fatal flaw. They had one fatal flaw. They had one fatal flaw. He'll get it out. That fatal flaw was this one. They allowed everyone to come in, and they allowed everyone within their ranks. What started off as a 500-strong group exploded into thousands. And this harmed them for the outcome because there was no way of accountability. So it's a learning lesson that for the future when you judge by the revealed law and you bring it, you be careful who comes into your ranks 
because a slave of a woman <coughs> with a big bushy beard and a white jalabia can spoil things quicker than a man with blonde hair and blue eyes that you think is the enemy. Or a man with a big afro when he's brown you think is the enemy. Or a man who's from Spain and you, he's, got, he's got wavy hair and you think he's the enemy. Or an Arab man. Someone who is closer to you than you think can be more damaged than someone who you believe is your greatest enemy. It's a learning lesson. So for what's happened with those brothers there, brothers that fought the whole campaign from 79 to 89, then they collected the guns in 95 and made the country safe where there was no heroin. Heroin was dry here. You notice when the Taliban were taken out of power, the streets were flooded with heroin again. John Pillager tells you that. Robert Fisk will tell you that because they got rid of it all. Now, some of the other areas I might not agree with. But some of you didn't read Darby Movement magazine like I did for the whole time they were, they, were, they were in power. Some of you didn't read the Islamic Emirate magazine like I did the whole time they were in power. Some of you didn't have people going and bringing washing machines and satellite phones and everything back. You didn't see what they were building when they were in power. Some of you didn't see it. Some of you didn't see the eyewitness people that were building it up. Some of you didn't see that. So what I'm saying is this, very quickly. We have to remember that, number one, the revealed law is implemented a certain way. And a law gives success when it's done right. Number two, that those that bring the revealed law must be careful to close ranks to make sure that they're not betrayed. Because there's always the coward and the punk and the traitor that's waiting behind the closed doors. Number three, is we must learn to not put ourselves in the way so that we might be punished for going against the revealed law or punished by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for being obstacles to that which he's revealed. Number four, in our own lives, if we want to see the revealed law go forward in a bigger sense, in our own lives we have to take responsibility. So if you want the revealed law to go forward in a bigger way, you have to make sure that you're praying that your family's praying in Jamaah. That your children are obeying and listening to what you've commanded them to do this righteousness. That you're not on heroin. That you're not on speed. That you're not on crack. That your neighborhood doesn't have prostitutes. You have to make sure that you do these things. Because if you do not, then you cannot move forward with anyone else as long as your own condition has not been resolved. And number five, and finally before we close, the revealed law is not just what gets chopped off, what gets hacked, and who gets hung up and crucified because of what they did or didn't do. That is an aspect of judicial law, but that's not all of what revealed law is. Part of what revealed law is, is giving you what you are entitled to. So whether someone is a Muslim or a Kafir, they are not entitled or they should not be raped. They're entitled to physical safety. Whether someone is a Muslim or a Kafir, they should be safe from break-ins and strong-arm robbery and banditry. They should be safe from those things. So revealed law, yes, those things are indeed a part of it. Steal, this could happen. That's true. But that's not all of what it is. We will not be a nation of hobbling people missing their forearms and some with eyes missing. That's not all of what this ummah is. That's a part of what is implemented. 
Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala did not say that when he's revealed law, when you rule by Islam, that there'll be no crime. What he said is when you rule by revealed law, that you judge between people with truth so that they know truth from falsehood. So when you see the man that's punished, you know that's wrong. That's not right. That's wrong. That's not right. Whether the crime rate is 3,000 a year, 1,000. You still know, people still know, that's not right. So we must remember this. And we ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to let us be among those righteous believers who obey him and do not violate his revealed law. And we ask that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, if he keeps us alive to see the era where this ummah is ruled by a prophet again, that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala puts us to good use and that we are of some use to those prophets. And we ask that Allah send his salat and salam upon all prophets before alayhim salam wa sallallahu ala sayyidina wa nabiyyina wa rasulina Muhammad ibn Abdullah wa ala alihi wa ashabihi wa sallam ajma'in wa rahmin rahimin la ilaha illallah wahdahu la sharika lah lahu al-mulk wa lahu al-hamd وهو على كل شيء قدير لا إله إلا الله ولا نعبد إلا إياه له النعمة والفضل والثناء الحسن الجميل لا إله إلا الله مخلصين له الدين ولو كره الكافرون لا إله إلا الله وحده لا شريك له له الملك وله الحمد وهو على كل شيء قدير اللهم لا مانع لما عطيت ولا معطي لما منعت ولا ينفع ذا الجد منك الجد اللهم اغفر لنا المؤمنين والمؤمنات والمسلمين والمسلمات والمحسنين والمحسنات والمجاهدين والمناقبات الأحياء منهم والأموات Oh Allah, we ask that you forgive us for our sins from the last Juma up until this Juma and make us better slaves of Allah than we were when we entered. Amen. Oh Allah, we ask that you make us among those who you remove cowardice and weakness from our hearts and replace it with bravery and justice. Amen. Oh Allah, we ask that you make us among those who fear no one but you and you alone. Amen. Oh Allah, we ask that you put us firmly upon the path of the prophets and those who are their successors. Amen. Oh Allah, we ask that you protect us from the diseases of the heart and the tricks of shaitan and the evil that's within us. Amen. Oh Allah, we ask that you make us among those who glorify your name at all times and are good signs and symbols and role models to others that may see us. Amen. Oh Allah, we ask that you give us good role models. Amen. Oh Allah, we ask that you give us righteous people that we can look to for guidance. Amen. Oh Allah, we ask that you make us good role models to those who see us as such. Amen. And oh Allah, we ask that you protect us from being disgraced in this life and the hereafter. Amen. Oh Allah, we ask that you protect us from the punishment of the grave and the fear on the day when there is no shade but your shade. Amen. And oh Allah, we ask that you put us under your shade on the day when there is no shade but your shade. Amen. And oh Allah, we ask that you make us among those trustworthy slaves who answer your call and we obey you at all times, fearing no one but you and you alone. Amen. Oh Allah, we ask that you make us among those brave and upright slaves who love all the believers wherever they may be who have this faith of yours. Amen. And oh Allah, we ask that you give us the best in this life and the hereafter and the best of the paradise. Amen. And oh Allah, we ask that you make us among those who in the paradise we are with the prophets, the scholars, the martyrs, and the righteous ones of Amen. And oh Allah, we ask that you bless us and protect us from the tribulation of the punishment of the grave. Amen. Oh Allah, protect us from the tribulation of the
the punishment of the grave. And O Allah, protect us from the fear on the day when there is no shade but your shade. And O Allah, protect us um, wherever it may be and give it strength and goodness until its end. about reality. See more at know.com.